Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Okay, it looks like all the questions have come out. So feel free to continue adding votes and we'll, we'll mark them off along the way. So my goal is to, as much as possible, go through all of them to the greatest extent possible. And one thing I always do is that, you know, whenever I was learning, I've always appreciate speaking as if I'm an expert. What I mean by that is someone's talking to me or teaching with me. Um, they assume I'm an expert because I can go home and Google this <laughs> afterwards. So I will give you answers as if you're experts, other VCs in the room. Uh, other peers. And I encourage everybody to Google this or find out what you now know that you don't know. I think we're pretty much good to go. So let's go back from the beginning, which is that when I was a kid, I loved to read. I love science fiction and I love stories. So I would read, obviously, the action movies and books that made me feel like one day national service was going to be very easy, which I was uh, found I was not. I would also read a lot of science fiction like June and 1984 and all these other different technologies. And obviously, when you first start as a kid, when you listen to science fiction, you're always there for the lasers, right? The sound effects. Star Wars is a big one. It's like a cowboy western in space. It's the same humans and different situations. But of course, I think as you go into it, you fall in love more, less about what happens if there's new technology, right? Because there's always a new version of technology in there, so on and so forth. I think they're very much a story about who humans would be in that context. And I think that's when I started to really enjoy science fiction a lot more. Because when I read fantasy books like Robert Jordan and so, so forth, technology didn't change and the humans didn't really change. And so there was this interesting dynamic where I really wanted to know what happened if people were put in a new situation. One interesting thing that came about was I also started falling in love with history because one of the things that came about was today we're talking over Zoom and everything. And this is a scene that came from 1984. Back then, it was unimaginable that people could talk to each other over TV screens. They had just invented and had mass TVs. But you go back a couple hundred years, people were using horses. And the thought that we could be driving cars would be coming out of a science fiction story. And so there's this interesting dynamic between history and science fiction where technology, about privacy, about rockets, about aliens, about civilizations. And when you read the old science fiction from the past, from 50 years ago, 100, it's so funny you see them talk about our future today. And vice versa, from a history perspective, we can go back and say, what did the past really think about today? And how has the current really changed since then? And this is key because I think that really was part of something special, right? Of me growing up, playing computer games, setting up a LAN cafe in school and running that, learning how to code robots, using the internet, being forums as an anonymous teenager, giving somehow relationship advice to people who turned out to be older than me, but we had no idea that he was older and he had no idea I was a teenager. But I think that was really my big love affair of technology, right? And since then, one of the interesting things was that I went to university. I studied technology, economics, and business. I went to UC Berkeley, California, which was near to Silicon Valley, and had a brilliant dose, I think, of coming to understand a little bit more about 
the fact that the science fiction that you read is a function of technology being built today. And that's an incredible thing to realize. Like the microchips that you're working on, the computers you have, there's actually a thread that makes it into the science fiction. And that's where I started really going to technology, startups. And along the way, I was able to obviously build and be thoughtful about my career, working as a consultant at Bain in Singapore, across Southeast Asia and China, working on consumer and tech, and also having the opportunity to also build something on my own. And for many folks in the room, they may know the first organization and company I built was a social enterprise called Conjunct Consulting, which was just a love for being part of society and giving back because I had received so much help, honestly, from social welfare services in Singapore. And so I wanted to take my skills and volunteer in a more experienced way. And so I had started out initially, frankly, I thought that I was a nonprofit leader or volunteer. I ended up becoming a nonprofit leader and eventually became a social entrepreneur because that's what was needed to make the business happen. And we were at that time in 2011, I was really part of the first wave of people working out of co-working spaces. And back then, I always remember I was one of the first few customers of something called the Impact Hub Singapore. People thought I was crazy because <laughs> why would you give money to a co-working space <laughs> when you have your own office? I was like, yeah, this makes total sense because I've been working at Starbucks <laughs> in City Hall for so many days. I would love to have my own spot. And I was one of those first few members. And during that time, we saw so many people that came up there. We saw Golden Gate Ventures was came to existence at that first co-working space. There was Glintz, another group of folks who had then dropped out of university to build a startup. And there's so many other folks that were just starting to call themselves founders. And there was this interesting piece where there was this interesting shift and meld about forming the world, transforming Singapore, transforming the region, and not necessarily knowing which way to do it, using technology, using social entrepreneurship, using nonprofits, using mission. There was that mishmash that was happening. And that serendipity also helped me create some of my best friends. For example, Song from The Hub. He went on to build two other companies after that. I still remember that time when he came to me and said, Hey, Jeremy, between two mason jars, which one do you feel looks like is a better fit? From that conversation, along with others that he'd had with all his co-founders, everything eventually built a successful company in Southeast Asia. I think there's this interesting ferment and fermentation of conversations that really happened. And all of that eventually made me get to the point where eventually when I had bootstrapped on junk consulting to profitability, hired on someone, I went off to Harvard to do my MBA. And I, that's when I really focused myself on really thinking very deeply about what I wanted to do. And I think that's when I really decided that I was going to build a second company, which was to be a technology founder, which had that meld of everything that, from my perspective, a meld of my love for science fiction and future, my comfort and interest in technology of the day, my skills and passion for building, and just wanting to get it done. And so I went to build and eventually I built an education tech company that we raised pre-seed capital, seed capital, series A capital. We expanded from Boston to New York and eventually we sold it. That was an education tech space. After all of that, I went off to come back to Singapore and I was pushed to come and join VC that was there. At that point when I joined to become VC, it was interesting because as a founder, I had primarily negotiated against VCs and I had partnered with VCs to build a future. But I had never thought about what my role would be. And so I very much took that opportunity primarily because of how great the opportunity was in terms of the mentorship and the training to become a VC without necessarily fully understanding all, all of it. 
that's how I started my VC journey as someone who was there to see the other side and there to understand Southeast Asia and to understand what it meant on an aggregate portfolio, larger sense. So that's how I started my VC journey. Here I am today with a certain set of learnings about what it means in terms of my experiences as a consultant, as an operator, as a social entrepreneur, as a founder, and now a VC. I think there are like three things that I've come to learn as a result of all of this. The first is that fundamentally, technology and startups and venture capital, it's about creating a future. And that's crazy because very few businesses are thinking about creating the future. I mean by that is when I am doing resource extraction, when I'm cutting trees, pumping oil, I'm very much focused on the present. I'm thinking things of the past, things that were buried in the ground or locked away something, and I'm extracting that and I'm serving the needs of today. So that's the past resources that we have accumulated and we're doing that and serving today. There's a lot of businesses that are really about trading and being middlemen, which is about if I help one country transfer goods to another good country, then there's very much about the present. And of course, I'm thinking about the future, about how the macroeconomics will change and so on and so forth. But very much time is measured based on speed, how fast things go from A to B, how things fast things go from B to C. And there are incredible stories, for example, the Jewish and the British families in China and in Hong Kong, for example, about how they would fight to have information that would arrive one minute faster so that they could trade on that information and they would buy American clipper ships, the fastest ships were built in Boston. And they'll use that to trade Indian opium to China and transfer Chinese gold and silks and to Indian tea as well, back to the British colonies, including America. And so everything was really about that trade in that moment. Obviously, that was something they cared about. What's incredible is that for us to be thinking about technology, about startups or venture capital, really assumes that we are thinking about stuff that is not just one year in the future, not just five, not just 10 in the sense of the average exit period or the VC lockup period. But it's about creating the future. Because when you create something for 10 years, it's not as if the company disappears. It still is there and it's still supposed to remain being there for a long, long future. And that means that there's something absolutely bonkers about it because you are basically assuming that there's peace, that there's stability, that there is a future in 10 years, there is a future in 100 years, that you can build a company in 10 years that would not be blown up, restructured, broken down, seized or occupied to build a future for the next 90 years of society whether they are living, eating, having fun, having relationships, playing, raising families, whatever it is, is there. And so there's something absolutely incredible about capital and being a founder and doing startups. It's because we are living in one of the most blessed and privileged times of our lives. Because I can tell you, when my great-grandparents fled China, they left China because they were struggling from civil war, from hunger and from foreign occupation. And when my grandparents built a small one provision shop, they weren't allowed to raise capital. No one gave them money. They had to save and scramble. And they lived with another war called World War II. And so they had, couldn't build a large business, a large startup or be borrowing money, let alone be able to walk freely and what their individual identity was during that time. And so just think about how crazy, how absolutely insane it is that for the first time in history, really, 
that all of us around this table, not just the kings and the queens, not just the nobles, not just the elite, but all of us in this room can sit down and say, hmm, I would like to build my career and work in the next five years to maybe become a founder, to build a, or a VC, to invest or to build companies that will be there for 10 years to serve society for another 100 years. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And nobody 50 years ago, let alone 70 years ago in Singapore, nobody in 1940 or 1920 or 1800 could have ever said that and be able to think on that time scale. And so VC is really about taking the dreams of what we have today of the next 100 years and seizing that and bringing it back to today. That's really the first thing I've learned. It's really about that time horizon that's just incredible about technology, the fact that all of us are thinking about it. The second one that's really true is about the timelessness of humanity. And what I mean by that is even though we are going out to build stuff for the next 100 years, to build it within a company context within 10 years, the truth is humans are still the same. And what I mean by that is the humans of today, of this year, will be the same in 10 years and the same in 100 years. We'll still love, we'll still hate, we'll still be jealous, we'll still be selfless, we'll still be kind, we'll still be greedy. And all those things are still true. And we know that's true because we ourselves as humans are not very different from the humans of 100 years ago. In the 1900s, if you read the books about their stories, they also wanted the same things. They wanted to be rich, they wanted to be powerful, they wanted a home, they wanted safety, they wanted stability. The only thing that has changed between 100 years and now has been the form of it. We don't just want a house above us, a small hut, a kampong to be in. Now we want a condominium, a pool. And so the form of those things have not changed. And so we can see that as well, actually, with the paranoia, for example, that people had 100 years ago about technology. When printing word first came out, written word first came out, I was at Gutenberg Press, people panicked that the printing press came into existence. They were worried about too many people reading. They were worried that people would spend too much time reading instead of being in nature. They were worried about only the elite being able to have access to the technology. And so it's so funny because when you read this history, it's about people panicking about printing press. Then you can see for yourself today that people still panic about technology in different ways. People have panicked about rock music. People have panicked about jeans. People have panicked about the TV. People have panicked about the radio. And I always remember that my mom, for example, really hated me being on my, at that time, Nokia phone and being on a Game Boy. And today I look at her and she's always on her iPhone all the time. So the timeliness of humans will also happen in the future between today and what will happen in the next 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. No matter what version of technology we're on, we're still on the alpha version or the beta version of humanity. And the third that's really interesting is really about economics. Here you are having people who are going out to build the future, to bring a vision of 100 years out and try to get it done within 10 years instead of 100. But the question is, why even do it? Do you do our charity? Do you do our goodness of your heart? Why would you even build a company like that? Or why would venture capitalists give you money? Or why would a banker support you? Or why would people join you? And I think the most important thing that's really happened is the ability to make money, trade, we can call it capitalism, meritocracy. There's all kinds of different ways that we talk about this. But what's really at the crux of it is the fact that 
there is a reward for taking the future of 100 years and bringing it to the next 10 and to help people get what they want as a normal human being. People get rewarded for it. And that reward is interesting because it's a big, big debate today, which is how big is the reward? How fair is the reward? How should it be distributed? And these are all really good questions. Because the truth is, look at SpaceX. And before SpaceX came into existence, I can tell you that 10 years ago, there was a pessimism about our ability to explore space again because nobody had gone back to the moon after that big race because of government. The first Apollo and all that race was a giant competition between the Soviet Union and America about who could plant the flag and claim moral victory over the other. There was a big driver of the economics. And so everything was built by the government. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was no longer a drive for that human exploration of the space. And so we went to robots and a lot of foundational and fundamental science that NASA did an incredible job of. Then we entered the age of pessimism, which was that nobody believed that we would be able to go back to space again. And if you read all the articles, it's just like, hey, we went to space, went to the moon, and since then we've done nothing, basically. But something was happening. And what was happening was that venture capital was being invented Peace and stability had been restored to the world to the point that entrepreneurs now felt comfortable building crazy businesses that had to be around for at least 10 years, if not 100. And then the gears of the world, globalization, trade, financing, all those things, all the humans all started coming together and said, hey, if we went back to space, how do we make money from this? How do we share the value? Because what is the value of going to space? Other than the moral, other than the space race, what is the value of going space? And people started thinking through it. They were like, okay, we can have global internet. We can have better weather forecasting. We can measure climate change. We can observe and track each other and much better. We can have GPS that's more accurate and we can guide ourselves to go from point A to point B. We can give bandwidth to every car that's traveling around the world. There's so many things we can do. And that trade has allowed for something truly incredible to be built which was SpaceX, for example. But not only SpaceX, but the countless other space-related industries and company players that are there. For example, from Singapore on my podcast, I was so pleasantly surprised to discover my first ever space lawyer, a lawyer who deals with space. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That a lawyer who normally does with constitution, property rights, construction, can now talk about space, debating about property damage in space and so on and so forth. His job only exists because of founders who decided to build for space, who saw that future and said, there is something special because building space is not just for pride, but it's a way for us to have a better life for everybody around the world. And so I think overall, the three big learnings I had at the end of this thing before we go into Q&A one by one is that when you are in technology, when you're a founder, you're an operator, VC, the fundamental crux that you never lose beyond the cynical headlines or tough conversations, or struggles of a company, or whatever it is, is to remember that you are fundamentally building the future of humanity. And that you are taking what was only dreamed of 100 years and trying to make it in 10. That you're choosing to accelerate the future. Fundamentally, still serving the fundamental human requirements of the human race, of individuals, of what it is. And the only reason why all of this happens is because all of us are trying to exchange value and make each other's lives better, which happens to be accounted for in terms of cash as a store of value in other ways. We still have a responsibility to our society and our government 
and the people who are less well off and the people whose lives are impacted by the future and the change. That we always help them accommodate, change, adapt, and that we have a responsibility to lift all of us together in one home. So that's the end of my speech here. And I'm going to take the questions one by one. And feel free to add any more questions. So hopefully I've answered how I started my VC journey as part of that dynamic. Why I want to be a VC was because it's like there's a joy of creating the future. I think what's a little bit different between a VC versus being a founder versus being an operator is your level of agency and your level of breadth around how you bring that future in existence. And what I mean by that is that if you're choosing between being a founder versus being an operator, an executive, the big difference between the two, assuming that you're a high-caliber executive and a high-caliber founder, is that you probably look very similar in terms of skills. The only difference is the imagination of what exactly is the future going to be building. Because as a founder, you don't know why you're taking that vision and you're articulating the vision. You're selling to people to have that vision. Whereas an operator, when you join a company, that vision has already been articulated by the founder on average. So what I mean by that is like a founder said, I believe that we can make self-driving cars happen much faster than we think we actually can. The founder would be the one articulating a journey and everybody would think they're crazy. And the mark of a successful founder would be how many people join them and how many people help out and how they're able to translate to reality. Whereas the mark of a good operator would be someone who's able to help execute and help bring their vision to reality. I'm going to say this, there's no virtue being more on one side or the other. There's no more prestige in one or the other. I think they both have their roles to play in the world. And the VC, you're also playing a role. And what you are is that you're really supporting the founder because VCs are funded by limited partners, endowment funds, universities, etc. Create the asset class to help have and share the fact that there is a very risky set of endeavors and there's commensurate reward compensate for that risk. And so VCs are partners and supporting the founders there. And so VCs will get to see a broader view. They'll get to meet hundreds, if not thousands of founders, and they will get to choose in many ways act as an unofficial filter or proving ground or scouting for talent. Because for VC, you're thinking about a very long-term future, you're looking at businesses in a very pattern approach, but you're not necessarily specialized in one specific vision of the future. And so in my brain right now, I think of lots of different things, same thing as the same way I would as a founder, but I'm much more broad, whereas as a founder, I was much more specialized, for example, in education tech. So hopefully that helps you understand why you would want to be a VC. How did you accumulate your social capital in the early stages of your career in school? Social capital is basically saying that there's some sort of asset in a social network. And now we're saying it is reputation. Reputation is trust. What is trust? For me, it's fundamentally about, I believe in you even when I don't have to. I choose to believe in you. And that's really, 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 really tough to achieve in life. Trust is situational. Trust is conditional. And trust has limits. When you talk about trusting other humans, it becomes reputation. It becomes your role is to help articulate what people can trust you on, to deliver on what people trust you to do, and to also share what Frankly, they shouldn't trust you to do and don't do it. Because the worst thing you can possibly do is promise somebody something that you can't do and for them to have their trust broken in you. And that's how you lose your reputation. And that's how you lose your social capital. Now, what's interesting about social capital as well is that you have a choice, which is, are you going to play short-term games with people? Hang out with short-term people or long-term people? Because social capital takes a long time. And it's not really transferable across networks. 
right now you have a choice, which is if you choose to cheat, lie, or break a promise or overpromise, you're playing a short-term game because you're basically saying that I have something in the short term that's way more valuable than the reputation I have, than about what I'm going to do, than everything else. So the interesting thing is that when you are hanging out with short-term people, playing short-term games with them, they trust that you'll play a short-term game with them because that's the rules of the game. But I'm going to say that that's a way of the world that works for some folks. And I'm not going to say that's a bad strategy. I'm going to say it's a viable strategy. If your question is that you want to build social capital, you have to do two things. You have to play long-term games, which means, like I said, building out trust with the currency. And you got to hang out with long-term people. And that's why, for example, not in Singapore, but in other societies which are small, which are tight, etc., people tend towards long-term social capital accumulation because there are more consequences when society is small, tight, the reputation travels for very far away. So if I trust me, if I was in douche to someone in Singapore, it would travel very fast. But if environment or the club has a lot of transient people who are not really in for the long term, then the consequences of me being a terrible person is diminished because there are less consequences and less penalties for that. So I think that's something for you to think about. There's a very transactional way of looking at it, but you chose to use the word social capital. So I'm going to choose to articulate it in a more interesting way about what that means. How did you get into Forbes 30 and 30? I was building conjunct consulting. And in that, had no idea, but Forbes 30 and the 30 had set up and was looking for Southeast Asian folks. And I don't know, but someone nominated me. I have no idea who it was. I, have, I woke up one day and I saw the email. I thought it was spam, actually. <laughs> so I had to email them back and was like, hey, is this for real? Pretty much. I mean, in a nicer way. So how does how I got into Forbes 30 and 30? Frankly, I think the way you be joined Forbes 30 and 30 is a function of two things. Again, build something amazing and accumulate your social capital then eventually you will, to some extent, be recognized. Of course, I think there are shorter cuts to it. I think people do build amazing things and then they do accumulate the social capital and then they ask people to prefer nominate them to Forbes 30 and the 30 as well, which I think is also a viable strategy. My biggest challenge when faced when investing in a startup, the biggest challenge is that sometimes you visualize a future that's so clear, but the truth is that the team isn't really there or the founder isn't really there. And that sucks. I think there's an awkward reality, which is that there is better founders and there are worse founders. Just like how there are better VCs and there are worse VCs. Performance is often on a bell curve. And the reason why it's challenging as a result is that you can respect and admire what they're building and you can even sometimes see what they're trying to build. But there can be very strong considerations about why it may not work. Strong competitors, maybe the team isn't as good as them. Maybe it's a fundraising or communication skills isn't that strong as you need them to be to achieve that future. That's tough because on a fiduciary duty, my responsibilities and my occupation is look for the best. In America, there's very clear data that out of every 40 startups that have raised some capital, like a C-stage, only one of them will become a unicorn. You have all these people, all these investors who made an investment in 40 startups, gave them millions of dollars, and actually only one of them will actually achieve the outcome that you have. The truth is, you're making a judgment call. And the best VCs, the ones that we acclaim and have high financial performance, are the ones who are better than average at finding that one in 40 compared to the rest of the market. To be a great investor, you have to turn down a lot of people. And that's tough. That brings me to the second challenge that's there is that I think the humility as a VC is really key. Even though you make the assessment that this may not be the right fit for investment, the truth is, the VC may be wrong. <laughs> and as I always tell people, everyone's like, Jeremy, what do you think? I'll tell them what I think. And at the end of it, I'll tell them, 
I may be wrong. The humility, remember that you may be wrong, that the founder can figure it out or the founder can learn quickly or the founder can hear from your feedback and adjust and adapt and pivot the company accordingly faster or that the VCs is flat out wrong and the founder's on the right track all along. Or maybe the founder is wrong on this company, but maybe right in five years when the founder builds another company based on the learnings they've had in the future. So that's the biggest challenge when investing in startups. And the last two is what's one thing I wish I could tell my teenage self when I was in junior college. Frankly, my first love, my girlfriend had passed away. And I think that was a tough time for her family, friends, and myself. And I think there was a lot of grieving that was there. Even to this day, I still stand by the fact that she was a tremendous person who wanted to be a pharmacist, a doctor. I wish I could trade myself for her anytime still. That time, I think in that darkness, I think the one thing I wish I could tell myself was that your pain will still be there 20 years down the road, but yet it will also be a different flavor. And I think the happiness that you feel will still be there about whatever it is you've achieved, whatever it is, but it will change. It will be adapted. It will be something else. It will have made some of the choices I made and sacrifices I made along the way a little bit more understandable. I think I would have been kinder to myself and I think I've been kinder to the people around me because I think hurt people hurt other people. I could have been a kinder person to myself and to other people as a result. And the last thing here is what are some of the sacrifices you have made to achieve the person you are today? To do anything, we have to sacrifice or we have to trade off. You always have a choice, no matter where you are, no matter how tough it is, or no matter how much environment is. And sometimes when you choose not to choose, you're just choosing non-choice, but there's a consequence to that. It's a choice in your own. One sacrifice that I made, for example, I'll tell you, is just like university. I didn't party as hard as I wanted to. And I lost relationships and friendships because I chose to graduate a semester earlier to save money for my family and myself, but also use that time to build my first business, which was Conjunct Consulting. I sacrificed money. I could continue a career at Bain and done a nice job and get promoted along the way. But I chose to take on a career of more risk and not necessarily more reward in terms of financially, but more rewarding in terms of the day-to-day and who I am as a person. As a founder, I chose to build out in America because that's what my wife had requested to spend more time in America. But so as a result, I sacrificed time with my family back in Singapore. And I sacrificed my, at that time, time to go set up a family of my own with my loved ones. My best advice to have is if you're truly intentional about that choice, a sacrifice isn't painful. A sacrifice is something that you choose to do. Those choices will define the sacrifices that you have made to become the person you are. And that's the best gift that time has ever given you is that those choices make you who you are and nothing else. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So right on the dot. Thank you, Jeremy. Anyone has any last question for Jeremy before we go? No? All right. Jeremy, really appreciate it. Let's catch up later. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>